Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, the podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In today's episode, I'm gonna be addressing some ask me anything questions that I've been asking for on the Elite Game Developers newsletter. I sent out a survey form where I basically asked the subscribers of the newsletter to send out questions related to to gaming studios and how to build successful businesses and all things related. So let's get going with this first episode. But before we answer the first questions, here's a few words from our sponsors. All the developers out there that are looking for an easy game server auto-scaling solution should definitely check out GameEye. Choosing GameEye means choosing your players, as GameEye is a platform-independent solution. Game sessions are spread out over multiple providers to ensure redundancy and to achieve the best possible coverage in every region of the world. GameEye is your one-stop shop for all your server orchestration needs. They have many integrations already in place, ready to go. You also can connect to your favorite matchmaker, anti-cheat solution or network optimization tool to their orchestrator and start running game sessions. They provide the APIs for this. Take advantage of automated capacity management and always have resources to run game sessions. Scale when you need it in locations close to your players. Check out GameEye.com, that's GameYE.com, to see what they're up to and to connect with them. Hey game developer, are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games. An opera event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that Elite Game Developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. This podcast is brought to you by Pollen VC. Hypercasual is all about speed in its core, but payout delays from ad networks can make a huge difference in the ability to reinvest into UA and developer payouts. So we have been working with Pollen VC to enable us to eliminate payment delays and optimize our finances. This has helped us to build a progressive publisher with fast payouts to our developers to bring more great hypercasual games to market. That was Alish Yakubov, CEO of Ducky, a fast-growing hypercasual games publisher based in Moscow. Pollen VC provides credit facilities to fund UA spend as well as a suite of free online financing modeling tools to help visualize ROAS, LTV, and cash flow. Visit pollen.vc to check out the tools and learn more about our non-dilutive financing to help you scale. The first question comes from Dinesh, uh, who asks, Hi Joachim, I saw your video on 
how to minimize risks in games business. Had a lot of good points to take into account. Thank you. I had one question if you can answer. There is this Delta DNA video on YouTube called Player Engagement, the Good, the Bad and the Great, where they mention that early sessions in gameplay with high session time is a bad thing for the games. Whereas in your video, how to minimize risks, you talk about the opposite of actually like longer early sessions indicating like better retention numbers. Can you help me understand? Is this contradictory and or am I misreading it? Well, regarding your question, Denise, I think uh, I would say that both are true. So in Delta DNA's case, if you don't have sessioning mechanics in place to keep players engaged, but engaged in several sessions where they sort of feel that they can leave the game like with a good feeling that they've done everything they can for now and they're going to be coming back later on. If they're just playing the game endlessly, uh, you can be burning out these players because the game is giving out too much content immediately for the players to blow through. So all these sessioning mechanics, like let's say in hyper-casual, there are these video ads that come between the levels, which is sort of a natural break for the player so that they, they aren't in this intense gameplay all the time without any breaks. And another example is like merge games now, which are very popular in, in mobile. Uh, you have this energy mechanic. Uh, as the energy runs out, you got a pop-up that you can spend some diamonds or real money to actually like top up your energy or you can come back later when the energy has replenished. So that's also a natural break. It's not about monetizing the players like crazy. It is actually creating these natural breaks to prevent players from burning out. So um, let, we, let me give an example of a bad session. Like the, back in the days when I was at Supercell, uh, there was the game called Gunshine, which was their first game on Facebook before the mobile games, which basically came to hit games, Heyday and Clash of Clans. So Gunshine had a very long tutorial where you'd go through lots of training regarding how you play the game, how you use your character, and then you'd go into missions. And what ended up having is that each player had this very, very long play session. Uh, it's not only the reason why players weren't really coming back to that game, well enough uh, but like it was a very complex and very hardcore game but there was this belief that these sessions were quite long and it already burnt out most of the players uh, so like I think Supercell learned a lot for Heyday and Clash of Clans on uh, doing things a lot better um, so like so if you want lots of minutes to be in the first day meaning during day zero uh, you shouldn't have them all in one session, but rather like split it into several sessions and then summing those up into looking at, okay, we have really high day zero session times. It's going to actually mean really good retention for day one, but you need to have those sessioning mechanics in place. Otherwise, they're, they're going to be burning out as the, the Delta DNA 
video mentioned. I'm going to link to both videos in the, the show notes so people can check those videos out. So the next question comes from Icon. Um, Icon asks, how do you validate product market fit in gaming? Well, product market fit was coined in the early 2000s by Andy Radcliffe, who is currently CEO and co-founder of Wealthfront. He was actually one of the founders as well of uh, Benchmark, the venture capital firm. This whole concept of product market fit basically means that you have something special in your product that customers want so badly that they are willing to pay a premium to get it. Uh, You like Andy Ridcliffe actually said that you often stumble into your product market fit. There's a certain amount of serendipity that plays a role in finding product market fit. But the process to get to serendipity is incredibly consistent. What we do is we teach that incredible consistent process, says Andy Radcliffe. Well, in gaming, a game that has product market fit is basically a game that generates a consistent and predictable profit for a foreseeable future. So it is a profitable game. Uh, but like, let's if you look at the days before free to play, when you were sort of working without metrics and data, uh, you had to work on a game until it was finished and you could put it into the stores, into the shelves, and people would buy the game and then you'd get the numbers on like how well your game was sold uh, and that, that showed product market fit. But now in the, in the latest years that everybody has gone sort of like very metrics driven, you can measure certain key performance indicators like KPIs to actually see if you have product market fit. And the cool thing is that you can actually do it very early as well nowadays on several platforms where you can launch games early and drive players in. Let's talk about the most important key performance indicator here. So retention is the most obvious one to start with since it's the least effort to actually reach. You can build an experience that lasts for a few days and then measure how many players are returning to your game on the day after they installed the game. So that's the first step in validating your product market fit. And then like the, the thing that you do there is like after you have this day one retention, which is the, the retention for the following day after installing and trying out the game for the first time, you start looking at day three, which is like three days into the future from the install day. And then you, you do things like day three, divided by day one, uh, where you can see like, let's say, you know, 60% uh, day one and 30% day three would mean that you have 0.5 ratio. So you want to get to some some kind of like uh, 0.7 is usually what's considered as a good, uh, good point that people are actually wanting to play your game more and more. And then you proceed to day seven, day 30 onwards. Uh, there are many ways to calculate what is good enough like okay uh you've reached actually like a product market fit uh i talk about more of these in my free ebook called the advanced retention metrics so i'll i'll add a link to that as well in the show notes like first off like just going into like what could be a good day one number so if if you want to clearly like 
identify a product that definitely will make money. Like if you have day one above 60%, you have product market fit. That game is going to make uh, make money. At, the, at least enough that you can grow the company and, you know, start the next game in the future. Uh, it's a it's a really good indicator. And then you go into like the day three to day one ratio, which should be above 0.7. And then, then day 30, if you hit like 10%, that's amazing. That is also a big indicator of product market fit. Uh, so all of these can really like make a business uh, that is profitable, that can pay salaries, that you can continue growing your company. Of course, if you hit all of these, uh, these targets of day 160, day 3 to day 1 ratio above 0.7 and day 30 is above 10%, then you're looking at a, a really good hit game. Uh, and then, then the final thing, of course, is looking at the CAC to LTV ratio that if your customer acquisition cost is lower than your player lifetime value, meaning that how much you pay for a player and how much they're going to spend or make money by playing your game. Like if, if you make more money, you, you can basically like just fuel your game with user acquisition and go from there. Of course, these all differ for hyper casual, casual games, mid core, hardcore, but these are the sort of like the mechanics that you want to use when you're validating product market fit. And this is not only for mobile. I think a lot of smart developers are now doing this also for browser games, for PC, all sorts of uh, devices where you can actually ship a game early to test out like let's say a vertical slice and see how people are staying and then continuing to develop the game based on proving first day one then day three and going forward and you eventually lead to actually like validating the product market fit. The next question comes from Eshan. So Eshan asks it has been a while that I've been thinking about our startup story. I wanted to ask you what kind of stories do you like to invest in? How could we find our story? Uh, well, I have this article called 20 Reasons Why Investors Say No. Um, I myself has, have been spending so much time in the last two years doing angel investing and sort of like learning uh, a lot about uh, what are sort of like the, the indicators of, of a startup that that will indicate that this is something special that is happening. Like there are the KPIs, but there's also the, the, the whole emphasis of why these founders have a company. So the reason number 10 in this, this article that I wrote, uh, and I'll also link that into the show notes. Reason number 10 is that uh, investors will say no, that if they felt that the founder is not a storyteller. So uh, there's several ways to approach storytelling, but one I, I would say is uh, that you want to feel the investor getting excited about the opportunity. Doesn't like you can you can uh, you can want to go that route of understanding as well what is venture backable. That's that's one thing I've taught taught a lot about is just just to to go and actually analyze what kind of companies investors are backing. So you should still sell your story once you have it. And telling a compelling story really matters a lot. Because I have a big feeling that uh, usually investors want to bet on big dreams. That's one angle. But you could also 
go a bit differently with this story. It doesn't need to be, you know, the moonshot story. Uh, I'll give two recent examples of compelling stories that I heard from companies that I talked to. The, the first one was from a team that had built a very diverse culture intentionally. So they used to work in, in game studios where the lack of diversity was evident in the way that interesting ideas would not just be shared because there were a lot of biases regarding consensus of, hey, this is how games should look like. This is what kind of games we're doing in this studio. Uh, you know, they need to be top grossing hits, whatnot. Um, so this team, when they started their own studio now, they intentionally wanted to have a company that has a diverse point of views uh, to have a bigger chance of actually finding a new idea that could be turned into a game. So they they want to sort of like do everything very differently. They want to have a lot of thinking going on that is very different. Uh, individuals thinking differently, talking differently, doing things differently. That was their insight and their way of building a company that would matter a lot in the long term which was very compelling. I hadn't heard of this kind of like, you know, intentionality regarding diverse points of view. And the second story was from a startup with a group of kind of like beginners into the game industry. There was there's four founders and all of them were in their early 20s. Uh, they started this company during their time at university where they were studying game development. They wanted to do mobile because they sort of felt it was the platform of the future. But all of the first games that they developed, uh, they didn't really work. So they spent months building these games and always ended up in a place where they really didn't get good retention numbers. But then they decided that they needed to learn what sort of like professionals and experienced people, what is a sort of like an ideal approach to that, this kind of situation where you are sort of like not progressing in finding better and better games uh, when you're developing. So they told me that they actually had stumbled upon elite game developers a little bit over a year ago. And they started reading my articles and watching the videos that I would post and listening to the podcast episodes. And they were inspired by the, the rapid development approach from this Finnish company called Traplight, makers of uh, Battle Legion. So uh, I had Riku, the, the CEO, on my show. Uh, that was actually over a year ago when we were interviewing him. And uh, the, the Traplight approach for this rapid development, they actually posted a blog post out of it. I'll link that into the, to the show notes as well. Is that they, they first focused on having a game that really works well on day zero so that you have a really fun, uh, fresh feeling into the core gameplay and that you would have really good session metrics as well, that people are trying it out, they're, they're, they're playing it several matches until they sort of like let go of the game. And once they, they've proved the day zero, they would move to, to the day one, day three, day three to day one ratio and onwards. And the startup guys told me that they, they also changed their ways uh, of discussing how, what kind of game concepts and prototypes they would be building they were having these in internal discussions that changed so they weren't uh, like kind of focused on like some early ideas and then building prototypes but they they focused more on actually like 
having a lot of discussions before they actually kicked off a prototype, like intentionally knowing what they want to build and why it matters. Uh, so they came more, they became this kind of more critical about their own approach, about how they make games and about their biases toward making games. And, and they developed a focus on validating their games through these MVP launches and metrics after that. Uh, so they, they, they continued sort of reading my articles and they looked at the, the B-team article uh, that I have and how they really felt uh, kind of like relating to, to the article where I'm actually talking about this A-team is the people who immediately can raise a few million with the team and the pitch deck. And then you have the B team, which is sort of on the cusp of this fundraise, but they just need some evidence that things are working. And then you have the C and D teams, which are sort of like, I, I wrote that they're, they're kind of like in the desert, wandering in these circles, uh, where they actually aren't really like building this uh, learning capability, this growth mindset to understand what they need to know to actually get out of this situation they, where they were really stuck in not getting good retention numbers. So that story really resonated well with me and felt like these founders are really you know, building a company that they, they feel is different. And I also like resonated really well with their, their story of actually, hey, I want to be as an investor involved in seeing how these, these people progress in their career and how the startup grows. So both of these stories really resonated. Uh, it shows that these teams were really thinking about the company and, and the identity and, and that you would have some insights that others aren't really having. It's not uh, the thing that you need to compete with other people's insights, but it's sort of like genuine and you want to do things differently in a good way. So that really resonated to me as an investor. The next question comes from Yolan. Yolan asks, how viable is it to start a new startup during the pandemic? How likely is it to attract outside investment during the pandemic uh, for an early stage startup? Uh, does it have any benefits or drawbacks to wait for a post-COVID world? Um, this is a really good question. So I'm going to focus on how things have changed during COVID and how I believe things will change for the future. So in early 2020, we went from having, you know, GDC flights and hotels booked to a world of Zoom calls and virtual conferences. Uh, I believe that the whole game industry and I think the whole, you know, tech industry uh, have learned to be more streamlined with how we conduct meetings and in general how we spend time. Uh, in this previous world, we, we were dedicating several days every month for travel. So like either you're going to that coffee shop for a meeting or to the office every day or to these game conferences like every, you know, once or twice uh, in a quarter. And now you can be, you know, in your comfortable clothes at home and talking to these in on these video calls. So I think specifically for fundraising, the the investors have learned new ways to read signals from the founders. So like we do more reference checks uh, since we can't have these physical meetings in person where we can more read, you know, 
body language, gestures, like get a better feel, like get more casual conversations going. So even in, I would say, in the pre-COVID world, we needed to learn more about the founders outside of the meetings. So you would still be doing all these reference checks. So I think like how like you wanted to still know how these founders would be acting in different kind of stressful situations, how they worked in teams, uh, were they team players, uh, did they have ego problems, all these kind of things. Uh, so the need for reading the founder hasn't actually changed much. So people still want to know, like if they are investors investing into a startup, they want to know a lot about the founder. But with all this time now saved, uh, where you're not sitting on a bus or a car, in a Uber, in trains or at the airports, like I, I think everybody gets more things done. Um, and if we are really good at building like these productive or productivity systems where we are time blocking things really well, I think we can accomplish more and have you know, other things to think about and work on more projects at the same time. So for investors, it can mean that they can do a lot more deals uh, from their own you know, home office uh, and more companies get attention and like there's more processes in place to actually speed that up. So I think like if we just talk about the post-COVID world, uh, which should be happening quite soon, uh, I think we won't be moving back to to like fully the way it was before, like going into, you know, the physical meetings that you need to meet up at the conference with all the investors. That's not going to be happening. I think like we won't want to schedule all these pitch meetings into the physical world. Uh, so like because we, we know now how inefficient that was. So we'll, we'll do most of the meetings on Zoom, uh, even in the post-COVID, I believe. Um, but kind of like the personal relationship building and like reading the founders, I think that's the main driver for having these real world conferences, like meeting actual people and spending casual time together, which is sort of very inefficient with Zoom. So I, I re read recently this book called Culture Map, uh, which I'll link into the show notes. Uh, it's a really fascinating book about uh, how different cultures around the world work and interact uh, together so with with people talking to people building relationships working together uh, i think some cultures prefer more of like a business relationship where you develop also a friendship uh, uh, with, and uh, all this physical closeness and interaction not happening now in the covid world uh, it's been a lot harder um, but when we go back into like having the possibility to physically see each other, uh, I think those kind of activities will be, you know, coming back in a in a big way versus like what you can actually do on the Zoom call, you will still do on the Zoom call. So to answer your question, uh, I think the the benefit or drawback of waiting for doing a fundraise now versus the, the COVID post COVID world. I would say no, that like you shouldn't wait or you shouldn't hold off since investors have really adapted well into looking for great companies on Zoom. And I think they will continue pursuing 
looking at these companies also in like the post-COVID world in very effective ways. So we will still have a lot of Zoom calls and investors will prefer those in the post-COVID versus the pre-COVID sort of de facto face-to-face meeting. If your question points into kind of like using sales tactics that work better in physical meetings, I think then you want to lean towards waiting for the physical meetings. Uh, I'm not a big fan of any kind of tactics. Uh, I think uh, stories can be told through video calls as well. Um, But it really depends on your personal preference. Next question comes from Haga. Uh, What kind of changes to games have you seen that take the game from a bad day one retention to a great day one retention? This is a really interesting question, Haga, that you're asking. I, I think there's several several ways to answer this question. So, but I, I like before answering, I, I want to sort of go into the to the details on what day one actually means. So you have a game where the player starts to play the game, and you have an analytic system that is recording this particular player starting the game, and then the player plays the game for a while, and then there's you know, one uh, night, <laughs> like in between, and then the following day, the player might come back or not. And if they come back, they are sort of like checked marked as a day one returning player on the following day after they installed and started playing. So the same thing goes for like, you know, day three as well. You have three days and then you get day three and so forth. But so, yeah, let's go back to the day one. Uh, why are we looking at day one here particularly? Why, why is it so important? Well, I think uh, it is because we want to understand how attractive and engaging your game is. Are people willing to continue playing the game after they slept over it for one night? Uh, it's a very, very sort of like common uh, measurement nowadays. Uh, a few things often come up when people are sort of discussing day one measuring. So first off, why are we looking at particularly day one? Uh, What if the player comes back on day two, which means that they still love the game as much, right? Uh, So isn't being strict about day one a bad idea? To me, it feels like like this this comes a lot up. But since we are talking about this industry benchmark that everybody is sort of using to evaluate games, I think it's better to stick to something then sort of like going outside of it. Uh, because if you if you sort of like have enough players coming into your game, you can have an accurate number. And you don't want to be comparing, you know, apples to oranges, like uh, which, which isn't really a good idea at all here. So the second kind of thing that com- comes up regarding day one often is like, how about we just look at day one and any day after day one as the returning day? because then that would show kind of like the accuracy of if people just skipped one day and then they still love the game as much. So I think here we're talking about something called the rolling retention for day one, where we include day one and any day after that. And there are certain tools that do this rolling retention. There's a few problems with that mechanic. Uh, When you are doing changes to your game regularly or you're still in soft launch, the rolling retention will constantly be improving as you add more days to the calendar. 
So the problem is that you start off with having day one at 35%, and then a week later, that group of players who started and had that day one of 35%, it's better now because people will come back on the later days. But the problem becomes that then you need to wait this kind of like arbitrary uh, length of time before you can measure the accuracy of the day one as it's constantly changing in the future. Like when do you actually have an accurate day one? Well, the best way is to be strict about the day one. It needs to be that actual 24-hour time frame after they installed and played the game. Uh, looking at day one is then pretty kind of consistent. And the third thing that often comes up is uh, what is enough players to measure a day one? Well, I always aim for having a few hundred players trying out the game in, in one cohort, uh, meaning one version of the game. Uh, like let's say 200, 200 players would be a minimum, but like 300 is a lot better. And I think 400 players starting and looking at day one for 400 players is definitely enough. Uh, you shouldn't worry about them, you know, so spreading all those installs on different days. But what you want to do is kind of like do this weighted average uh, where you sum up the retention for all of those days so that if you started, like, like let's say you had 100 installs on Monday, that they have 51% day one, and then the rest came on Tuesday and Wednesday, but they only had 43%. So don't put that 51 into your pitch deck. Rather sum up all the, the counts, uh, how many people started on all of those days, and then look at how their sort of like summed up day one is looking like. So in many, many analytics platforms calls this the, the weighted average. So you want to use that in your pitch deck to be more accurate regarding uh, the num actual number and not cherry picking the best days in, in your test. So let's, let's reiterate, why does day one matter? It's one of the main key performance indicators for games and it's easily comparable between a lot of games. Like everyone in mobile games knows that day one of 40% is sort of like the minimum, uh, but it still needs work. And if you go above 50%, that's really good. And you can definitely build that into some sort of a business. And if you hit something like 60%, that's amazing. And it's sort of like in those that area where where all the investors who are investing in the early stages will want to throw money at you. Uh, so, and now to your question, what kind of changes do games have I personally seen that take a bad day one to a great day one? The answer is that I haven't seen many big changes, actually. The, usually the big changes happen when the developer has launched the game just way too early, like without a lot of critical components, like they might be missing the tutorial or it's it's done very badly. And in those cases, I have seen games, you know, go from like having a five percentage points increase in their retention. I think that's that's something I have seen. But like one of the things that I see a lot is that these inexperienced teams who get uh, day one at 20% or 30%, um, they're often pretty dumbfounded about uh, why the game isn't doing well and what should have they done differently. And in these situations, I keep digging into the ways that the founders 
actually built these games up. And I often discover that the game doesn't feel that exciting and there's some core gameplay issues with, which might be confusing the players and that the game, it's, it's pretty much like, you know, you've experienced everything that the game offers in the first few levels. So then it becomes more a question about like, are you competent, in, competent enough in game design to actually like build games? So I think like the way to improve a game that has something like 20 to 30% day one is to actually p- become more knowledgeable about how mobile games work. So like, what are the UX best practices? What are player motivations? What keeps players enjoying certain games for uh, days, weeks, months, years? And you want to be playing playing a lot of games, especially on mobile. You want to pl- be playing those mobile games, uh, discussing with the team that you're working on on those games, discussing about some hypotheses on like, hey, this is how it could work better. And you read up on content. So like Deconstructor articles are really good. Javier Barnes, uh, who has been on my podcast a couple of times, he writes a lot about gameplay as well. So he's really good good at this. Um, so there are also like, you can always like share your game with people who are knowledgeable out, about game design and ask, what is wrong with the game? Uh, and, and you're gonna learn a lot from that. Just, you know, don't be afraid to ask. Uh, I think that's what uh, Steve Jobs said in one of his talks is like, just, you know, the, you'll learn more if you just don't keep everything to yourself. So uh, that's what I'd say. The, the biggest difference to improve day one is that you become more knowledgeable about what look, what is success on your platform and you need to know what is missing in your game so that you can in- inject your kind of own secret sauce into your games. The final question of this episode comes from Goran. Goran asks, how much equity is a fair share for a seed stage funding round? Let's say between 350,000 to 450,000. And what is the best way to proceed to validate my company? Meaning, what are other options to to complete a deal successfully? Well, Garan, uh, I think you are asking two questions here. Let's first tackle the first, the fair share question. You asked how much equity is a fair share for a seed stage where your funding amount is between 350 to 450,000 euros. Uh, in any kind of funding round where you are raising hundreds of thousands or millions, you should always expect to, to give out something like 20% of the company to the investors. It is a fair number as then the, the ownership of the investor will not dilute too much in the future funding rounds. So investors know from past experience that a half a million dollar round usually means that there will be two more funding rounds minimum happening to the company. Uh, and before they do, they reach a, a stage where they don't re- need any more funding. But sometimes there will be even three more rounds. And with each of these rounds, the existing investors and the founders will del- dilute in their ownership. So going from owning 20% in a seed round can turn into like, you know, uh, 10 to 15% after all the dilution happens. Um, and also the founders will go down because like, the existing investors can always participate in the funding rounds, but usually the founders won't have that uh, 
chance because they're just going down in how much they own of the company anymore. So I would say 20% is a good number since that that will mean that the investors have enough to have ownership, meaningful ownership in the future still if they participated with that kind of a percentage ownership. But also the founders won't be giving up too much of the company at the early stage. And then you asked, what is the best way to uh, kind of like produce this validation for your company? And also like, what are other options to complete a deal successfully? I think always in, in fundraise, the best way is to validate your games company by validating your games. So you build an MVP, you launch it and you measure retention numbers. That's a very sort of straightforward way. Of course, it is not as easy as said. Uh, but like, if that isn't an option for you uh, and you still need to raise before you start developing games, maybe you can't hire a team or you tried to hire a team who would work uh, without the salary and you need that cash to pay people. Uh, I think then you want to strengthen your position in other ways to become more attractive for investors. Like ideas in a pitch deck usually aren't enough. Uh, at least you need to have the team, a very credible team. So if I look at games companies that raised money before they had retention numbers, uh, not to mention any revenue, it's always the, the, those companies are quite similar. The, the founding team had many years of experience from working games, from tech, product, marketing side of, of the games industry, uh, preferably from all of these areas, you would have somebody who has knowledge of that area in the team. And they've shipped games uh, and they know what it looks like to make games. Uh, they've gone through that school of game development. Uh, so, and investors, since they are playing this kind of game of risk minimization, uh, the one big risk minimizer would be this team that has knowledge, has built games before, has launched them, has marketed, done UA. Uh, that means that the investor will have confidence in the team to do what they're saying they will be doing. And if you don't have a team like that, then you could work on bringing people into your team who are entrepreneurially driven and want to have their own startup and are looking to make similar games as you. Uh, possibly they have the seeds to uh, like to be interested in certain skills that you are lacking in your team. Maybe they are very market marketing oriented. They could pick up user acquisition and start learning, uh, becoming these kind of learning machines, even if they don't have the experience and, and quickly start showing progress and finding those team members who would work without the salary for a while, but still have a piece of the company as founders. Um, so then you would join forces and then you become a much better candidate for funding in the eyes of these investors. So it's not always necessary to have those great retention numbers. Just if you can prove out that you have a process in place to build towards a game that works, that is also a risk minimizer. Like let's say you already built a few MVPs and the numbers are getting better and better with each build and the next one most likely will go closer to 50% day one, uh, then the investors might be very interested. And, and of course, like angels will come much earlier than VCs. So 
that is one option as well to sort of like prioritize angels. I have a a full podcast and uh, podcast episode about angel investors, so you you could check that out. It's in my uh, show notes here in the episode. Uh, but yeah, like you've already built games, tested them, you are knowledgeable about the market, you can communicate this to the investors really clearly. I think those are the the keys to actually unlocking funding for your startup. So thanks everybody for this first Ask Me Anything episode. If you have more questions like these, please do send them out by filling out my questionnaire. You can find it uh, by going to elitegamedevelopers.com slash ask me anything type together without any spaces i'll also link that into the show notes uh but yeah uh this was it for this week uh i'm gonna see you next week again guys take care bye bye